You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode 344 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As you guys will recall, we used the last episode to start to look at the life story of Daniel Edgar Sickles. One thing we didn't mention in the last show is that when Sickles left New York with the first units of the Excelsior Brigade, he had left the friend with whom he'd recruited the regiments one William Wiley, stuck with the bill for housing, feeding, and supplying the men. Wiley said the bill totaled over $280,000, and he would later complain bitterly that Sickles had, quote, marched off with three regiments and paraded them before Lincoln and said he had done all of this out of his own pocket. There were piles of judgments against him in the offices. He left me in the lurch. I left him on account of it, denounced him then, and have done so since. End quote. Well, so there you go. At any rate, by the end of the last episode, Sickles was done schmoozing in Washington, had his coveted Brigadier General star, and was finally, actually, heading off to war. We've talked before on the podcast about political generals, but we know some folks may be joining us just for the Gettysburg story arc, so perhaps it would be worthwhile to review just what a political general was during the Civil War. Well, a political general was an officer without significant military experience who was given a high position in command for political reasons, through political connections, or to appease certain political blocks and factions. Now, most of the top generals in both the Union and Confederate armies were graduates of West Point and were career military officers. In addition to military training, many of them had battlefield experience gained during the Mexican-American War or Indian fighting on the frontier or Florida. However, due to the necessity of raising large-scale volunteer armies, Both presidents, Abraham Lincoln and Jefferson Davis, for various reasons, appointed a number of the so-called political generals. Some of them, such as John Logan on the Union side or Richard Taylor on the Confederate, developed into competent military leaders, while others turned out to be, um, not-so-competent military leaders. 
The most important reason for appointing political generals was to appease important blocks of voters. Abraham Lincoln notably used such appointments as a way to get the support of moderate Democrats for the war and for his administration. Two of the very first volunteer generals Lincoln appointed were such war Democrats, Nathaniel Banks and Benjamin Butler. In addition, Carl Schurz, who we've already mentioned in connection to Gettysburg, was a prominent ethnic German civilian leader whose last military experience prior to the Civil War was fighting on the losing side of the 1848 revolutions in Germany, but he was appointed to high rank for his usefulness in rallying fellow immigrants to the Union cause. Okay, so political generals. In his excellent book, Sickles at Gettysburg, Jim Hessler writes, quote, Few imagined in late 1861 that Daniel E. Sickles had stepped into a new role that he would play for the remainder of his long life. With no military education or training, he probably gave little serious thought to a career in the Army. It is with some irony, then, that his new public persona was that of a war hero, an image he would carefully cultivate for the next 50 years. As we mentioned in the last show, when the Excelsior Brigade sailed off to war as part of McClellan's Peninsula Campaign, Colonel Sickles had remained behind in Washington, cultivating his friendship with President and Mrs. Lincoln and lobbying for his star. When Brigadier General Sickles finally went off to war to join his command, he'd missed the Battle of Williamsburg, which, as it happened, was the only significant action the Excelsiors would see during the Peninsula Campaign. Assigned to a division commanded by Joe Hooker, Sickles and the Excelsior Brigade were present but only lightly engaged at Seven Pines, Oak Grove, Glendale, and Malvern Hill. The brigade nevertheless shared the accolades bestowed on Hooker's division by friendly newspapermen. The brigade acquitted itself well at Second Bull Run in August 1862, while Sickles was absent in New York on recruiting duty. In the reorganization following that battle, Hooker rose to command the First Corps, and Sickles took charge of Fighting Joe's old division in the Third Corps. Although the division spent the Antietam campaign in reserve at Alexandria, across the Potomac from Washington, Sickles' fortunes continued to rise along with Hooker's. At the end of November 1862, Dan was promoted to the rank of Major General. His division again remained in reserve and saw little action at the Battle of Fredericksburg in December. More significant for Sickles, the disaster at Fredericksburg and the fiasco of the Mud March led Lincoln to sack Burnside and select a new commander for the Army of the Potomac. In January 1863, Joe Hooker, Sickles' old superior and now his patron, replaced Burnside. As part of Hooker's reorganization of the Army, Sickles received command of the Third Corps on February 5, 1863, becoming the only non-West Pointer among the seven Infantry Corps commanders, and the only one lacking previous experience at that level of responsibility. 
Many in the Army of the Potomac expressed doubts about Sickles' promotion to Corps command. Many also objected to Hooker's appointment, since, besides his aggressive fighting qualities, he was also known for his arrogance, self-promotion, and loose living. George Meade, commanding the Fifth Corps, was willing to cut Fighting Joe a bit of slack, writing of the situation to his wife in late January, quote, As to Hooker, you know my opinion of him, frequently expressed. I believe my opinion is more favorable than any other of the old regular officers, most of whom are decided in their hostility to him. Meade continued, quote, I believe Hooker is a good soldier. The danger he runs is of subjecting himself to bad influences, such as Dan Butterfield and Dan Sickles, who being intellectually more clever than Hooker and leading him to believe they are very influential, will obtain an injurious ascendancy over him and insensibly affect his conduct. The cause of Meade's dislike of Sickles isn't known, but Dan's lack of professional military education and the well-known distasteful aspects of his private life no doubt played a large part in it. At any rate, the Army of the Potomac embarked on the Chancellorsville campaign in late April 1863, burdened with a divided officer corps. At Chancellorsville, Sickles' command, for once, found itself heavily engaged. Occupying the right center of the federal perimeter on May 2nd, Sickles' troops observed what ultimately proved to be Stonewall Jackson's flank march around to the Union right. Sickles erroneously believed the Confederates were retreating, and he advanced aggressively to strike them a blow only to be recalled by Hooker. That evening, as y'all recall, Jackson's flank attack drove in the Union right and rolled up that end of Hooker's line. Sickles' Third Corps, strongly positioned on dominant terrain at Hazel Grove, held its ground despite some missteps by Sickles, including an ill-advised, disastrous night attack. Although Sickles wanted to remain at Hazel Grove, that position became increasingly untenable by the morning of May 3rd, as Hooker moved to consolidate his lines, and Fighting Joe ordered the Third Corps to withdraw to Fairview. The advancing Confederates very quickly discovered that Hazel Grove was an excellent spot from which to dominate Fairview with artillery. Blasted by rebel batteries deployed at Hazel Grove, the Third Corps and the rest of the Army of the Potomac withdrew even farther, and when Hooker lost his nerve completely, they withdrew from the field entirely and back across the Rappahannock. The Army of the Potomac had suffered another crushing defeat, but this time Sickles' troops had fought as long and as hard as any of the Army's other units. Losses in the Third Corps amounted to just over 4,100 men killed, wounded, and missing, which was actually the largest total for any corps at Chancellorsville. The debacle at Chancellorsville exacerbated existing fractures in the command structure of the Army of the Potomac. Hooker had called a conference of his corps commanders late in the battle to seek their advice. Although a majority recommended continuing the battle, Hooker had opted instead to call it quits and withdraw the army back across the Rappahannock. Meade was among those favoring a continuation of the battle. 
When he learned later on that Hooker was misrepresenting his stance, Meade confronted Fighting Joe and asked for confirmation of his expressed viewpoint from his fellow Corps commanders. He received satisfaction from all but Sickles, who, ever loyal to Hooker, reported that by the end of the conference, Meade had waffled on the question of whether to stay and fight. Meade's reaction to Sickles' response isn't known, but can be easily imagined. In any case, as the Army of the Potomac started to move in the early stages of what would become the Gettysburg Campaign, most of its senior commanders had taken sides on the larger question of Hooker's leadership. Chief of Staff Dan Butterfield and Sickles stood as Hooker's principal defenders. Notable among Hooker's detractors were Meade and First Corps Commander John Reynolds. As relations between Hooker and General-in-Chief Henry Halleck deteriorated, a minor dispute over the disposition of the federal garrison at Harper's Ferry supplied a pretext, and Lincoln, who no longer had confidence in fighting Joe, removed Hooker on June 28, 1863, and the president ordered George Meade to assume command of the Army of the Potomac. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Meade's rise to Army Command brought not only a fresh face to headquarters, but also an entirely new faction to control of the Army of the Potomac. Although by necessity he kept Butterfield as Chief of Staff for a time, Meade soon dispensed favors to his friends at the expense of those he considered Hooker's toadies. Prominent among Meade's friends were John Reynolds and 2nd Corps Commander Winfield Hancock, while Sickles was at the top of, well, let's say if Meade had a list of those he disliked, then Dan Sickles' name would be at the top of it. Anyway, with Hooker unexpectedly given the boot, Sickles now found himself subordinate to a man whose behavior toward him would be coldly correct at best 
and actively hostile at worst. Sickles would have to be careful with Meade in command of the army, and so, burdened by this personal baggage, the two men found themselves not only engaged in the greatest military campaign of their lives, but also about to commence a personal conflict that would end only with their deaths. Not surprisingly, Meade and Sickles began their new relationship inauspiciously. Bad weather, poor maps, and a weariness among the federal troops hampered Meade's initial efforts to move the army northward smoothly and quickly. June 29th proved especially frustrating because most of the Corps fell short of their assigned objectives. Only Reynolds' First Corps met its target. Not only was Hancock's Second Corps delayed three hours, but its failure to march on time caused the Fifth Corps to lag even farther behind. In response, Meade wrote understandingly to Hancock, with no hint of rebuke. However, when the commander of the 12th Corps reported that he was being delayed by the trains of the 3rd Corps, Meade instructed his assistant adjutant general to send Sickles a critical note about the matter. But then, apparently the more Meade thought about Sickles' lack of success on the 29th, the more he believed a more pointed message from headquarters was needed. Sickles' reaction to that subsequent June 30th note isn't recorded, but he could hardly have mistaken the tone and its message. Obviously, his friend Joe Hooker no longer commanded the army. To make matters worse, Sickles, that day and the next, then received a series of confusing and contradictory orders from either Meade or his designated representatives. On June 30th, Meade empowered his friend Reynolds to coordinate the movements of the three corps comprising the left wing of the army, including Sickles' command. Sickles received several conflicting orders that day from both Reynolds and Meade. Rather than fall further into Meade's bad graces, Dan reported the contradictions to army headquarters and waited for Meade to indicate his preferred course of action. A similar situation occurred the next day, July 1st, when Meade's Pipe Creek Circular mandated the 3rd Corps remain at Emmitsburg, Maryland, just below the state line. But then a message from Reynolds indicated he, Reynolds, wanted the Corps to march northward to Gettysburg, where contact had, had been made with the enemy. This again left Sickles uncertain as to his proper course of action. However, to his credit, Sickles acted promptly and decisively when additional messages from Gettysburg on July 1st announced that Reynolds was dead, that Otis Howard was in charge of the battlefield, and that Howard wanted the Third Corps to march to Gettysburg. Leaving one brigade from each of his two divisions behind at Emmitsburg, Sickles marched toward Gettysburg with the remainder of the Corps and notified Meade of his actions. On the way to Gettysburg, Sickles received another message from Meade, confirming his original order for the Third Corps to remain at Emmitsburg. But Sickles wisely disregarded this message, continuing his march to Gettysburg on the grounds that events had changed the context within which Meade had issued the instructions. Sickles arrived at Gettysburg by way of the Emmitsburg Road with two brigades of Bernie's division at about 6 p.m. on the evening of July 1st. 
moving on a parallel track west of the Emmitsburg Road, Humphrey's division nearly stumbled into Confederates near Black Horse Tavern and didn't join the Third Corps bivouac on Cemetery Ridge until nearly 2 a.m. on July 2nd. George Meade reached Gettysburg a little after midnight, and Dan Sickles was one of the generals who met with the just-arrived Army commander at the gatehouse of Evergreen Cemetery. From Sickles' perspective that night, Meade's actions on July 1st must have seemed to be those of a man not completely sure of himself or the situation. Certainly, from where Sickles stood, Meade's performance of the last 48 hours had thus far encouraged little confidence in the new army commander's leadership. And so, with that, the stage was set for the fateful events of July 2nd, which, rather than start in on that here, we'll save for the next show. But what we wanted to show with this episode is that the events that'll transpire on July 2nd with regard to Sickles and Meade and the danger to the entire Union position at Gettysburg They didn't take place in a vacuum, but instead took place within the context of who Sickles was, who Meade was, and the already strained relationship between the two of them. So there you go. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Gettysburg, The Mead-Sickles Controversy by Richard A. Sowers. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. We want to thank everyone who supports us over on Patreon, including the newest members who have signed on. Andy S., Dwayne W., Scott M., Jacob E., and Patrick F., Mark P., Chris G., Jeremy C., Thomas C., Peter F., Jared G., and Rusty C. And thanks to Akshay and Jacob for their donations. Just a reminder that the music you hear at the start and at the end of every episode of the podcast is from the song Midnight on the Water, and we use it with the kind permission of Spiritwood Music. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War. 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope that you'll join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.